Wow. Yeah, Blown Away season one was quite dramatic, but they had like a RISD alumni. Um, mm-hmm. I'm like blanking on his name, but he was so good. And there's something about just really? like the RISD glass aesthetic, you know that you kind of have a you know sense for that maybe the person went to RISD. It's always yeah. like mostly clear, very, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, very like science-y chemistry lab mm. aesthetic kind of thing right. but he didn't win um did he get close kind of yeah you should watch it i won't yeah. spoil it for you yeah you already did <laughs> <laughs> sorry i think i was hesitant about watching it because it seemed like it might be kind of gauche you know like kind of kitschy it can but, it can be that way sometimes. Yeah, I guess it's like any reality TV show version of something seems like it could be kitschy, but that doesn't mean it's bad work. Like, I, I freaking love... Um, I used to watch Project Runway, even though I'm not interested in fashion or apparel design. It was just the format of it really just is pretty addictive. Dude, um... Yeah, it's very dramatic at times. You know how the hot shop can get? So they kind of like, kind of like uh, build build on that sometimes. Anyway. Well, how are they even doing it? I, mean, I guess I should just watch it. But how do you th- they get a camera crew? It, it must be a huge hot shop with like a lot of space where you're not getting in each other's way. Because there is a hot shop. There's no way more than like six people could be doing work with a camera crew <laughs> it's a big space yeah yeah mostly they're i think they're using like zoom lenses shooting from the back when they're making it mm. and then the interviews you know how it goes mm-hmm. yeah yeah so when i was opening up the rondelle jesslyn was distracting <laughs> me i mean if you can't help out why are you an assistant <laughs> kind of like Wow. Uh, anyway. Oh, okay. that's true. Because then the competitors are actually helping each other with the pieces. Or do they have like neutral helpers? So they have um, assistants who are students. Um, mm. So like different okay. glass students, they come and help. And mm-hmm. they're like really nervous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because you're like, you could make or break someone's, like, career decision, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Is this is this part of the podcast? Could be. We'll see how the editing goes. It'll be, like, in the beginning, maybe. All right. Um, let's do it. Let's do an intro. Okay. Need to get my intro voice on. Hello! <laughs> Welcome oh to gosh. another episode of Not Enough Design. I'm Rohit and I'm here with... Irina. Again. Yay. Again. I have um, 
I have friends that just came through town, which is super weird and great in the pandemic era to have made new friends and to meet them for the first time, like outside of a Zoom box. That's been really nice. Well, that's awesome. Um, Where'd you meet? Yeah. Um, we met, so I, oh, originally, um, mm-hmm. I started working with them on a project, an experimental opera production um, that I was oh, making like a- Your thespian print. friends. I remember that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah my thespian friends. And so um, they, I feel like they might take offense to that phrase. I don't know. Oh, There's really? so much Is more- Is that offensive? Thespian. No, but they just like do a lot of stuff. So I wonder if it would be like saying, calling us like- Artistic friends. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, maybe okay. they probably don't care. Um, so I first met them last summer over Zoom for the first time and had been talking to them pretty consistently since then. So like meeting once a week, um, which, you know, over the course of like however many months, six months, seven months, um, is pretty regular. So then we just felt like we were already friends. But then having met them in person for the first time, it's just strange. It's like, it's like when you're a kid, kid, I guess when you're younger and you like do online dating and then you meet the mm-hmm. person for the first time, I guess people still do that all the time. Just not me. Yeah. Um, yeah very strange. Um, but it was good. We met in a park, kept the COVID distance, had a bagel, nice. went to the botanical gardens. Very good. That sounds like Tinder dates nowadays, you know? <laughs> yeah. Appar- apparently yeah. Like, that's what they do. Go on like long uh, they maintain distance and they go on walks, which is kind yeah, of like I'm pretty sure. taking it back to I the just, 80s. No, not even 80s, like 19, like 1880s, maybe like the 18, 1880s. I, don't know. I feel like I've seen so many people on Tinder date, like first date in a park or something. Cause I'll just see, you know, if you go on a walk and you see youngish, couple sitting far apart and looking kind of bashful like they're probably on a COVID date right I think so it's kind of cute do what you can are the guys like picking the girl up for the first time <laughs> <laughs> that that's uh, like, yeah that's risky during COVID no when did I you was, ever get approached yeah okay wait what no, go ahead. Finish your story. Then I'll, then I'll tell you. Oh, I no. I was just remembering when you said the guy picking the girl up. I was thinking of um, I had a. I was dating a guy in high school that this was before. Was it before we could? I guess it was before we could drive. But he like picked me up in a golf cart, which is just such such a Florida thing. Retrospectively, it's. <laughs> I mean, it was cute at the time. <laughs> Where'd you guys end up going? I think we just like rode the golf cart around a neighborhood or something. Honestly, that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun. I always wanted to drive a golf cart. So when I was when I was a kid, we would go to like resorts on vacations mm-hmm. and with my parents and then there would like a lot of the times there would be like a golf cart parked in front of the in front of the hotel or at the back. And I'd have this idea every single time of like kind of like jacking it and then driving around. But I could never figure out like how to kind of like, I don't think you can jack without the key, right? The golf cart's kind of like. I guess, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess you could like hotwire it, but that would be kind of embarrassing. Yeah, no. Some once there was a key in the thing, mm-hmm. and I was like, should I just do mm-hmm. it? Like, this is the moment. But I was like, ah, it's not worth it, you know. But anyway, yeah, it's all this yeah. thing could probably catch up to you just by running really fast. <laughs> Can you imagine my mom looking out the window and I zip by in a golf cart and then five hotel staff members just chasing after me? That's going to ruin the holiday at that very that moment. That scene sounds like it's from a Wes Anderson shot. Like, you know what <laughs> it I mean? It does. Just take like a wide angle lens and shoot it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. And have like some pastel. Dude, I love the Wes Anderson um, aesthetic. As do like a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people in our demographic. <laughs> a lot of people in our demographic love Wes Anderson. Anyway, I wanted to go back to before I did the official intro. We were talking about Glass, and I want to go back to Glass because um, mm-hmm. uh, we both took Glass classes at RISD. One of the mm-hmm. lucky people who could. Because it's like notoriously difficult to get in, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Some it the thing about the difference between glass and ID. I think it's about that limitation in terms of material, where you're just stuck with like one material, and everything you do is about that. I think there's kind of like a freedom that comes with that restriction in a way, and I think mm, ID doesn't really provide that because we have everything at our um, disposal, which kind of can get confusing, you know, at times. But mm-hmm. I felt this kind of like art, almost like freedom to do a lot of things and experiment with that one material and go out. I think the brain works, my brain at least works better in that way. And I felt like the Glass family was also very closely knit. Um, so I had like, a, I had a really great time in the Glass department. Yeah, I I think the difference seemed like with glass, it was so much about the material, whereas ID is about using materials. So we can use whatever fits the brief or fits the product that we're trying to make. And the construction of it would depend so much on understanding enough about all the materials to choose from. Whereas I feel like if you're in glass for four years or I guess three years or however uh, undergrad works, um, everything you make is an expression of that material only. And so the end result is actually dictated by your understanding of one material. So it feels like the whole, the whole discipline is about the material. I think ID is just not about any one material at all. It's just making materials work in a certain way. Um, But I think that's what I like about ID too, is that you can incorporate so much knowledge and understanding of glass as a material, or you can never touch glass and, you know, be really interested in ceramics. And it's a similar sort of application process. Um, Did you not feel that ceramics was like glass in that way? where it was so much about just understanding how clay works. It was, absolutely. And I felt like there's a lot of um, um, parallels between ceramics and glass, especially like pottery, ceramics on the wheel. Mm -hmm. 
It the mm-hmm. material moves kind of similarly. The only thing is, you could you can touch clay, but you can't touch glass, and that's where that like the whole nuance of that art form comes in. Um, mm-hmm. But I think as a I think my personality is also like geared more towards ID because I if I'm if in my head I'm restricted to one material it's not going to work out because that's one of the reasons I was also in consulting because I want, I needed to go from like one project to another. I couldn't like stick with mm-hmm. one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I liked class because I knew I had that freedom in the back pocket, but in the meanwhile, I was getting into one material and I think, yeah, that's, that's why I D. Um, yeah, and um, we were talking about Chris Taylor before we began, who was our professor, mm-hmm. who was my first professor, taught me glass. Was he your first as well? Yep, yeah, Chris great. Taylor, yeah. amazing guy. What a character. Um, he, yeah. would, he was like just entertaining, talented, um, and he would just disappear right after the class. He would never hang around. You would never see him ever um, around RISD. He was just like uh, this, I don't know, uh, ethereal. Uh, I, I know, I, I agree. I really missed that kind of instruction during the rest of my time at RISD. Like there was something about glass that almost was like a sport in the sense that you the way he taught that specific class though, because of course they have the more conceptual side, but that class that we both took was very much a skills and technique based class. And so, you know, it was like do 20 of these or do this five times until blah, 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 you know, until it's perfect. And I missed that a lot because that's just not anywhere in the philosophy of MID, which is fine also because it's a different type of schooling. But I think to have that, just to have your professor really tell you like, this isn't good enough because if you don't put your energy in this, the way that you put your energy into your final presentation on the last day, then it's not going to get, it's never going to get to that level. And I don't know, I think that kind of rigor is really exciting for me. Maybe it's because of the way I grew up with teachers that were more like that. And it, to a certain extent, um, I think once it's passed a little bit, it can, it can be a little bit, um, over the top sometimes. Um, yeah, but with when Chris, it's like it never, never not good enough. enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah. think, yeah, Chris wasn't like that at all. He was like, if it was bad, it was bad. But if it was good enough, he would like encourage you. And then making it perfect is like on you. It was always on you. He would just get, yeah. get you to like good enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like his pieces were like paper thin, always. Just so perfect. <laughs> and it looks so easy. So oh good. Yeah, he makes it look like real easy. And he's yeah. on second season of Blown, Blown Away, streaming now on Netflix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not a sponsor. Spon- not a sponsor. Um, but yeah, um, I don't, yeah, I, I think everybody in the glass department, not, I won't speak for everybody, but a lot of the people that I knew, he was like the bar that everybody had to reach, especially Kim. I want to have Kim on this podcast as well. I think it'd be fun. Oh, she'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Wonder, yeah. Is she still in Providence? 
I, she's in Boston. Okay, right. Yeah. But it's it's like so hard for glass blowers right now because I remember the last time I spoke to Kim, she said that she hadn't walked into a hot shop since March of last year. Everything oh, no. shut down. Yeah. Which I I understand why because like it's really easy to spread germs in the hot shop because everybody's using everybody's pipes and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh that's probably, it's kind of like, um, the rock gym. I, when I was in Korea and they were just open, everything was open and there were crowds everywhere. Everyone was wearing masks, but it felt safe somehow. And it just felt like a totally different reality. Cause now I'm thinking, you know, it was really fun to start doing that again. And then I came back and I was like, Oh, I can't wait to rock climb in Denver. Cause there are great gyms uh-huh. here. I was like, oh, I'll never be able to do that. Uh, but just some spaces seem like the worst possible place to be during a pandemic. And I would say glass hot shops would definitely count. <laughs> Are all the rock gyms closed right now in Denver? Yeah, I imagine so. Um, even if they were open, I would not trust people here. Yeah. I, I don't know. People are weird. People are so relaxed. I think once 2021 rolled uh, rolled up, everybody was like, oh, it's over. And they kind of like dropped the ball. (laughs) It's nuts because I remember the sense of fear and like trepidation that there was back in last March, I guess, when Rizzi shut down Mm -hmm. and those first, that like first month where it was even weird to go outside, you know? And I, that fear, the fear itself is not, something that I miss, but I do miss that amount of unity in saying like, okay, there are certain things we can all stop doing in order to get this under control. And that sense of fear or responsibility or whatever it was, is just completely gone. It will never come back. Like we will never ever be collectively in that mindset again, even though it's so much more dangerous and likely to die now than it was back then. It's crazy. I think that has to do with like our survival instinct, like the human, we as a species, we're like, so um, we can acclimatize to anything so easily. I think that is also like a disadvantage for us because now we are acclimatizing to like this danger in order to just Mm -hmm. survive. We kind of compartmentalize that part and then let it, you know, just let it take a backseat so we can go about our daily tasks with like, with a little bit of sanity. Otherwise, like I would go crazy, you know, thinking about all of that all the time. And there are people who do do that all the time and they're having like the hardest time. Mm -hmm. But I think there has to be like a balance where you can kind of put it at the back of your mind, but also not be like, oh, I'm not going to wear a mask anymore because, you know, it's 2021 right. or something like that. But yeah. this is, this thing yeah, is yeah. like fucking relentless because, you know, at, in the beginning it was like COVID taking lives. Now it's the fucking vaccine taking lives. Like how many people are dying because of the vaccine? It's like, it's not proven that it's because of the vaccine, but like 29 people in... Where was that? A Norwegian country, Norway. Um, hmm. Died. I don't know that 
I've read enough about that to know. But I get, I've heard about the complications with um, severe allergic reactions in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, Even Bell's yeah. palsy. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. I think I've mostly heard of like people not, the actual process of distributing the vaccine just being kind of a clusterfuck too, which is... Yeah, because of the temperature needs or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think India has a vaccine that they're now like exporting out. Um, I think it doesn't, its temperature requirements are not as extreme Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. this one. But I don't know, it's it's just not tested enough, you know? Like, would you take it? I would, yeah, if it was available to me, but I don't expect it to be available for... Oh, wow. our demographic for a long time um yeah, yeah. i i in my head for some reason i just keep expecting like may june maybe but for, for, a a big, for a big class like ours we've done a good job touch wood like i don't think almost almost no one um had covid which is responsible i think from our cohort? From our cohort, yeah. Almost no one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, that also speaks, uh, I think that speaks to our social lives as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think when everybody moved away, so nobody has uh, too many friends <laughs> hanging around. Anyway. Yeah. No, I'm, I am uh, going to stay on the wagon for having an excuse to be antisocial as long as I can. <laughs> yeah, I kind of love I'll it though. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. I think that's the secret to surviving um, any kind of like viral apocalypse is to not have uh, many friends in the city that you're in. Then you're just like at home chilling, you know. It, it has worked for me thus far, also for you. Are you um are you an introvert? I think so. I would say so. I think I, I can I can What do you think? About myself? I well, initially I thought it was okay, I was like a part of that um group of the population who believed that I was, you know, introverted extrovert that could, then I figured out that that really doesn't mean anything. You're either like an introvert or an extrovert. And when I went to therapy, because I always thought I was extroverted, but my therapist said that she defined it as, um, it's how you recharge from social interactions. Mm-hmm. So it's how you, so if you like, like to wind down with people and then recharge that mm-hmm. way, like, your closest people, then you're more extroverted. But if you're like, I'm going to recharge alone, like I've had enough of people, then you're introverted. Based on that definition, I'm definitely introverted. Um, mm-hmm. But which is not like the common understanding of those terms, you know? Yeah, I I think there's like a little bit of uh, tendencies or at least social training for people to be able to function well in both situations, whether you're just like enjoying time alone, but also enjoying time with other people. <laughs> For me, it's like 
when necessary or once in a while, you know, but I think the best definition that I've heard that makes sense that is also less um, common is when when you are testing your reality, when you're like confirming what is real and what's happening, is it in your own brain or do you need to like confirm it externally with other people? So like if you have an experience and you need to fully integrate it into your, into your psyche, is it easier for you to do that by like reflecting on it by yourself and figuring it out in your own head? Or do you need to like get out of your own head and confirm it with other people around you and base it externally. But I don't know. I don't know. I think, again, a lot of people do both those things. So. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty interesting. Cause based on that, I think not always, but I think m- many times I'd like to like have a conversation with people about experiences to like have it really integrated about what ideas mm-hmm. I keep as opposed to reject you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would do that a lot um, at, in the studio, like after hours. Um, yeah, yeah. That's something but, I really liked about a mixed studio. People, people who are, um, their creative processes strengthened by actively seeking feedback throughout that's helpful for me because I'm not that way with my own work, but I like, I like talking through other people's stuff with them and it helps. It ends up helping me with mine too, but like people yeah. like you and uh, Alex is really good at that too. Just like, look what I've done. What do you think? You know, without any sort of expectation for needing a certain kind of answer. Yeah. I feel like in my personal life, I'm also, you know, I would, have an inkling towards, for example, Sirat gets pissed about this. Sirat's my partner, but it's like, say sometimes I'm, this is a stupid example, but sometimes I'm confused between like two sweaters. All right. Like, should I wear this one or that one? But I already know which one I want, you know? And so, and Uh Sirat would always pick the one I don't want. So if she says, wear this one, that would like confirm that that is the one I don't want. Oh, no. Right? So that is like confirmation towards what I don't want, just to make sure that I don't want it. Mm. Um, But also that crit in the studio would also serve something like that for me. But I would never vocalize that during crit because you're not supposed to. You're supposed to take all the feedback. Um, sometimes people would say something that would really push the project forward, but the other times it was just like, you know, take it or leave it kind of a deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most important, the most important like piece of feedback that I ever received was in most important, I wouldn't say most important, but this is like the salient one in terms of my thesis that really drove it forward was Jingwei just mentioning like she saw a YouTube video of somebody trying to make Coca-Cola into water. And mm. just that thing kind of like just drove the whole thing and spiraled it into what it became. 
which is like mm-hmm. that's why it's so important to like have these conversations with people and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast because to bring my friends in and have these conversations because we don't have that space anymore mm-hmm. yeah no that's that's really interesting because when you said the the most pivotal piece of feedback you got it actually wasn't even feedback it was just, yeah, it wasn't it was just like oh this reminds me of yeah. this thing which right, is right, cool right. like I think you're right there's a lot of times where the thing that drives forward the project is just a really good reference um to something which opens a rabbit hole or whatever um instead of something like, yeah, maybe you could do it like that instead, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely miss that. I love references. Reference trading is the best. Yeah. I wish we could have crits forever, you know? Just like a secret group of designers just meeting every week, critting each other's projects. It's so, I mean, it's like, valuable in a way. Personal? Would it be personal in this context after graduation? Do you think it would be good to have crit space for personal work or like actually bring in our like work life stuff now? Uh, Work life stuff as well. If it's not protected under Mm -hmm. the NDA or something. (laughs) But I feel like even from our cohort, you can like pick and choose. Say if I'm working on a medical project, then I bring in, I don't know, you, because uh, you have good ideas. Alex, because he's in the field. Uh, Vidur, because yeah. his thesis was based on that. And we could have a little crit. And mm-hmm. I would, and just me working on it, it would create, as opposed to that, it would create like five times more um, things mm-hmm. to think about and think through. And I think it's valuable. Um, That's a really good idea. I would absolutely love that space. Um, I wonder if that could be a podcast. Yeah, maybe this could be that podcast. Yeah, you can just call it the crit. Yeah, the crit. <laughs> Studio after hours. Studio after hours. Yeah. Um, do you see my humidifier in the background? Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. I was thinking it's like a water bottle or something. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess it's kind of just a water bottle that spits out water. Like a steamer. Do you think it really helps with, is that a, that's a Monstera, right? I, oh, I got it for me, but. Oh. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see if it helps the plants. I have never lived in a place as dry as Denver. Um, obviously because I grew up in Florida. Um, and then whenever I went back to Taiwan in the summer, it was just as bad as Florida. And then like London and Providence were like, yeah, not dry, not this dry. Um, and my skin and like the inside of my face, like my nose in the morning just feels like sandpaper because I'm not used to, yeah, it's, it's really not. (laughs) So I finally, I finally was just like, all right, I got to try this humidifier thing. Um, yeah, because also we'll you, must, you must have like your heaters on or something, right? I don't, no? honestly, I think there's central heating in this building, but yeah. it's just brutal. The whole, just the atmosphere is dry, um, but hopefully that'll help. It's only yeah. been going for like 
a few days. So we'll see. I'm so plant obsessed. I'm like, if you mention humidifier, I'm like, oh, is it for your plants? Because <laughs> that one's like notoriously difficult to maintain. It's like a... Uh, shit. It looks Galicia, good. Galicia zebrina. But it keeps nice. getting these yellow borders around the leaves because of the humidity problem, obviously, because these are tropical mm. plants. Tropical plants mm-hmm, look the mm-hmm. best, honestly. I mean... Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's definitely cool. Monstera. Ooh, I did a cutting! Which reminded me of you. My studio look, desk. And, it, and it's doing well. I gotta oh. plant it soon. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Those leaves are beautiful. What kind of a monster yeah, is that? Do you well. know? Um, I forgot the Latin name, but it. Yeah. I think uh, it's called like a s- common name is like a Swiss cheese plant or something mm, like mm, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I like the yeah, the, the holes. I I know it, it. There's a there's a word for it. Yeah. Um. When yeah. I first brought it home. Uh, David, David's my partner. <laughs> David was like, what did you do to it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I chose the disease plant to bring yeah. home. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm rooting for it. <laughs> Get it? Also, I don't know if you noticed earlier when you, um, when you were talking about your project, you said you said salient. I didn't know if you said it on purpose. Were you using that pun a lot? No. <laughs> Tell me what you I think. I like it. Salient, okay. Um, oh. last, last week, uh, when we discussed, you wanted to, I wanted to um, circle back to that topic where you wanted to talk about um, famous chairs. And it's replicas. I thought that was a very interesting thing to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I, I know that right now, mid-century modern furniture is hot. It's been hot for like the past decade or so. Um, the pendulum swung back in that direction. And I just noticed that like now it is associated much more with upper class, high income households, right? Um, And therefore a lot of Eames furniture, which is sort of the epitome of mid-century modern that we know right now, um, is just super, super, super expensive. Like the, the, either the original that has been restored or like the, the design within reach sort of branded chairs that have the rights to manufacture or whatever. And if there are Eames style chairs that are not from Design Within Reach or whatever brand name, they are considered fakes or um, just like a cheap version of the real one. And that really bothers me (laughs) because the point of Eames both of them making the designs they made at the time was to take advantage of what was new in mass manufacturing of plastics to make stuff that was 
democratic and cheap to produce, relatively cheap. And you can produce a lot of them. They're stackable. Um, you know, like all the things that we associate now with Ikea, but we think that Eames Ikea is fake Ikea and therefore not as good of a design. Like that, it just sort of flips itself on its head. Um, and that's always bothered me. So I don't know if I'm the only one, but I find that there's a lot of design snobbery that ends up being sort of backwards because when you know the original intent of the design, you, you, you would never say that. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Um, and I thought that, and the reason why I bring that up is because I couldn't agree more because it's weird to say that, um, the Eames chair made by design within reach is the real one. And the one made by, um, I don't know, any other brand is not because Eames is not sitting in the design within reach factory manufacturing or looking over the manufacturing of those. So any chair after their demise is basically a replica. That's Um, also true. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like Design Within Reach has the exact dimensions nobody else does. You could just buy an Eames chair and measure it off of that, right? And there was a similar kind of um, sentiment towards this company in India. I, I read this article on them. They're called Godrej. So Godrej is a big manufacturer of a lot of things, um, fridge, fridges, microwaves, dishwasher furniture, office furniture and stuff like that. So I took this class at RISD called uh, Bauhaus and um, we studied the history of Bauhaus and we studied the different, um, you know, important, not not important, like the prominent designers or whatever. And there was a designer called Marcel Brauer, who was Mm -hmm. one of the youngest and the most talented. He's like the rock star, you know, he invented the bent um, tubular bent furniture that's also kind of contested but I think he was like one of the first ones all right and that was he made the um, the uh, uh, what's the Klandinsky chair Mm -hmm. the one with the canvas it's the famous one Um, and um, and he also made this chair which is one of my favorites you see it a lot these days it's called the Cheska chair and so the Cheska chair, the one that comes with the arms, is notoriously similar to this Godred chair that was manufactured in, uh, I'm, I want to say like the 50s or the 60s. And then it became so popular in government offices that Growing up in India, we saw that chair everywhere. So, and that chair was like reminiscent of like old government furniture. It wasn't fancy. It's the complete opposite of what the Cheska chair is in America or Europe. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, yeah. it's, you know, it's dingy. It's nice. It has this like look, which is really like you can't ignore it, but you wouldn't keep it in your house. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's yeah, I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. Yeah, lookups Godred CH4. That's what it's called. And so my paper was about exactly that. Like, is it really a copy? 
because the Cheska chair was conceived uh, with, you know, it was made out of three things, you know, metal, the bent metal thing, um, the wood, and the, um, wait, what do you call it? The, the, the woven, the rattan, right? And, oh, these. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The origins of the rattan is from India and China. So this is just like yeah. unknowingly India's way of like taking back that those materials and design kind of incorporating it. So is it really like a counterfeit thing or this is what design is about though? Yeah. Yeah. This wow. is what objects are about. Yeah. No, but you're I love right. The CH4. I mean, this, yeah. The CH4, yeah. I mean, the the language of that material too. What is that called? The wicker, the wicker material? Rattan. Um, rattan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a material I would naturally associate more with Southeast Asia than yeah. Germany. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah absolutely. It was, it's because it's so hot and humid. Rattan was like yeah. wood, but it also provided for airflow. And what Godrej did mm. with that chair was they manufactured it out of like, they used the up and coming steel industry during that period and they manufactured it even cheaper. Mm. And so it was more democratized. So in a way that was closer to Baja's ideals than what this, mm-hmm. this Cheska chair is today. Yeah. 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 I mean, Oh, it's rough because that, that, I mean, is a thing where if Eames were alive, both of them are alive today, I wonder if they would prefer to de-democratize in the sense that they, I imagine that the sensible designers that they were more forward thinking, they would now be worried about the mass manufacturing um, of plastic chairs, you know? So like, I wonder what direction they would have gone if they Mm. were around during this time. Um, like, would they go true. back to the very bespoke, very um, one-off, beautiful sculpture-type chairs um, that weren't mass-manufactured? Or would they just be innovating materials that were more circular? I don't know. It's really interesting to think about. Or, but, I mean, or would Ikea they, is closer to what they originally were. Absolutely, yeah. I wonder if they would just say that, you know, enough chairs in the world... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think like the move would be to go for repair, would be to go for, because mid-century modern furniture has been in vogue for like so long. Forever. Forever. (laughs) So So just like repair them. Why create more of that? You know, I think there are enough chairs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think, I wonder what they would actually be making. Because you're totally right. Like back then, I don't think the chair was as iconic of a like design school prop as it is now. They probably by now would be, I mean, they did so many things with their life. Like, did you know they were, um, they did like a whole museum education, like exhibition design thing. And they um, did educational stuff like in India, which I didn't even know they were over yeah. there physically. So yeah, India's top design school, NID, was started mm-hmm. by the Bauhaus. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it was started specifically by, oh, I'm so bad at names. Yeah, um, he was the archi- yeah he was the architect who like designed cities and stuff. Um, <laughs> Which one? With the <laughs> was he? Was he Indian or English? No, no, no. He was, uh, he's from the Bauhaus. Just, um, wait. This is the podcast, everybody. Let <laughs> me find the, what? Uh, no, not Gropius. Okay, okay, this is gonna. So, I'm gonna Google who designed Chandigarh. Chandigarh is a city in India, just Chandigarh is in Punjab. Oh, is it not? Um, I was this, um, Le Corbusier, yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. So, Corbusier visited like India, and I think, I think Corbusier kind of like with the prime minister at that time. Nehru, they wanted to like make this design school that would utilize what's new in India and utilize its like heritage and all of those things and come up with design such. And they made NID, National Institute of Design. But the thing is like, I have a lot of feelings about NID, which I don't think I should talk about, but I'm gonna. Um, and I feel like NID is still stuck in that period and it's stuck with mm-hmm. like Corbusier ideals and I know there are a lot of designers within NID who do break away from that but I think there aren't enough opportunities for NID designers to like really get their work out there you know what I mean because mm-hmm. yeah. with because it's interesting this is like the thing with Indian colleges like NID is the number one design school in India IIT is the number one tech school in India. But even though I studied economics and I got into RISD for ID, I don't think I would get into NID, which is weird. Because mm. NID is in the rank, global rankings, NID is nowhere close to RISD, you know? Yeah. Is and the style very much still in that Bauhaus language? No, not really. I think the thing with Indian institutions and colleges, even with IIT and stuff like that, it's like, how well did you do in school based on, especially IIT? It's like, how well did you do? It's like kind of getting into Harvard, but kind of harder than getting into Mm -hmm. Harvard, you know? It's a lifetime goal. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of the um, ranking systems that they use in like Taiwan. I don't know if they still do it now, but like when my parents were there, you would take the same test as everyone in the whole nation. And then based on that score, you would just get... Ranking colleges, yeah. We have that too. It's called CAT, Common Admission Test. But... Dude, it's, that's why like so many talented designers and engineers just go out of India because they can't get into IIT, but they can get into like Harvard. Mm. So why wouldn't you? Yeah. Like, 
I love thinking about Harvard as someone's like plan D. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't know. I think um, because when I was applying to colleges in India, because I never wanted to go out in the first place, but I, my high school score was somewhere like 92% or something like that. College cutoffs were like 99% that year. Jeez. Best of five subjects, 99. That means like there are people out there who got a hundred. Yeah. How do you get a hundred? It's fucking crazy. Jeez. When you do get in, is it free? No, but it's cheap. Oh. If you yeah. go to like the state colleges, it's pretty, pretty cheap. And yeah. Yeah. So it's not designed to put you into lifelong debt. Not really. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be a trend everywhere else in the world. Oh, don't even, here. oh fuck. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think what do you, this was a good this is a good podcast. This is a good conversation. I think um before we go, I want to say Thank you, Irina, for joining me for two episodes. We had a lot of fun. I enjoyed yeah. you on this. Um, and I hope you come on more often. And we can Friend figure something out. Friend of the pod. I think that's the move. And I think you've given me kind of like a vision of how to take the podcast forward. In, because starting the part, you know, doing it alone, again, doing it alone, you don't really see the end of the tunnel or where you are. But I think my idea for the podcast was to kind of bring back that like post after studio after hours conversation with friends and bouncing off ideas and all those and talking about stuff. And I think I kind of have an idea of how to go forward with that. And so thank you once again. And thank you guys for listening. And I slash we, maybe, I don't know. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was a good one, Ariana.